Go ahead and have a seat. And if you have a Bible, you can meet me in Acts 17. Acts 17. I went through my notes the other day and looked at our podcast. We have preached about 30 sermons in the book of Acts, and we are a little more than halfway through. So I don't know what, you know, Olympic contest that is like, but hopefully we're winning it. Um, We're going to press pause on the book of Acts here at the end of the month. I'll do kind of like a summary sermon because we won't be back into the book of Acts until sometime in 2022 as we give our attention to some other stuff. But we're going to be in Acts 17 for the next two weeks. And when we last left our heroes, Paul and Silas, they were in a city called Philippi. They were miraculously delivered from prison. And they have left town, and Acts 17 has them arriving in a town called Thessalonica, or if you've got a British accent, Thessalonica, just depends on how fancy you want to be. It's it's about a 100-mile journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. They've probably ridden uh, a mule there doing about 30-mile increments, which Luke kind of gives us this idea of, and he's naming these towns. And when they arrive in Thessalonica, This is one of Paul's first encounters with the big city. He's been in important cities before. Philippi was pretty influential in its own way, but Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia. It's the capital of this region. It is a truly Roman city. Uh, Philippi is a Roman colony. This is a Roman city in its own right. It is uh, a hub of Roman wealth and government. It is underpinned by this rapidly growing emperor cult. We'll talk about that in a little bit, that by this point in the Roman Empire, the emperor was already starting to be worshipped as a god. Uh, And part of the evidence of this is that in Thessalonica, before the time of Jesus, the coins originally had the Greek god Zeus on them. But by the time of Jesus, the coins now have Caesar's face on them. Uh, And so... Paul enters Thessalonica and finds himself at the crossroads of money, politics, and religion, right? In other words, the things that our mothers told us not to talk about in polite company. Paul goes ahead and talks about it anyway. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and then came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. That word reason, it's it's a different kind of proclamation. He's not merely preaching. He's uh, conversing with them. He's uh, debating with them. He's creating proofs to show what? Verse 3. He... He is reasoning them uh, with the people using the scriptures. Verse 3, he explained the prophecies that proved the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. He's saying to Jewish people living in Thessalonica who are expecting a Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth who you have heard about, this guy that was crucified on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem, he is the Messiah that you and I have been waiting for. So verse 4 says... Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with many God-fearing Greek men. And it's interesting, it says quite a few prominent women. 
starting in Acts 16 with that conversion of Lydia, as you read through the rest of 16 into 17 and even into 18, Luke is just dropping hints about prominent women becoming part of the Jesus movement. It's just interesting little nudges. So Luke uh, tells us that Paul and Silas have this ministry in Thessalonica that is very fruitful as he explains these prophecies from the scriptures. And so uh, there's some Greek women of Greek women of note, Greek men of note, some Jews that place their faith in Jesus. But this kind of creates a little bit of a problem for Paul. Look at verse 5. It says, some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. We keep uh, bumping into this jealousy of the Jews who hear Paul's preaching and some of their brothers kind of convert to the way of Jesus or arrive at the way of Jesus. And it's interesting to think about this kind of jealousy dynamic. It actually just continues to increase in these next few chapters. But really the reason for the Jewish jealousy against Paul and Silas, it comes down to why jealousy always comes down to power and pride, power and pride. I don't know if you know this, but there exists within our community here in little old Mahoning Valley a little bit of a competition between churches, right? Uh, when I, I was growing up in a church here in the area and then got an internship at another church in the area, and I remember a leader from the church I grew up in when I went to go work for them said, oh, I hear you're going to work for the competition. Direct quote which she tried to like laugh off as a, oh, but we know that's not true, right? But I often find that people tell me the most truth in the jokes that they tell, yeah? And so there's this sense, I think, in this jealousy that kind of exists between churches. And I mean, I even felt this way. You may have heard of a church that's called, it used to be called The Movement, it's now called Rest City, and they've been very fruitful in reaching young adults. And so when we were starting Regen and we said, we wanna create a community that is really reaching unchurched young adults. Every time I said that out loud, somebody was like, have you heard of the movement? And I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, and, uh, but there's, I think that's a shadow of some of what's happening is that Jewish leaders in these various cities are kind of seeing their power and position and ultimately just some jealousy that, you know, here I've been preaching the gospel to these people in the synagogue for decades. And then this random peddler of religion walks into town and whammo. So in verse 5, it says uh, that this jealousy, they recruit some troublemakers. They call the bad batch. I, one of the commentators uh, translates this verse that they go and find the men who, quote, loafed around the, the agora ready for mischief. But the King James Version nails it. The King James Version nails it. The, he, they call these troublemakers lewd fellows of the basest sort. Lewd fellows of the basest sort. So they stir up trouble. It says, this is what it says uh, going on in uh, verses 5 and 6 and on. It says, so some of the Jews were jealous. They gathered some troublemakers, or again, lewd fellows of the basest sort, from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag him out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them to before the city council. They say, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they're disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king, named Jesus. Let me just kind of read that again. 
They are guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. I like how the ESV translates this. I was looking at some other versions. The ESV translates that idea. It says in the, in the New Living, it says, Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world. The English Standard Version gets it better. They say, these men have turned the world upside down. If that sounds familiar, it's a line that's used in the musical Hamilton. The world turned upside down, right? And that's the song they use this line. And I wanted to do some research. Was that like a founding father that used that? Or is that Lin-Manuel Miranda who's using that to describe this? But it's a line that they sing after they win the Revolutionary War. Which when you think about it, that was kind of a world turned upside down moment. Because how does a ragtag volunteer army in need of a shower somehow defeat a global superpower? See, those of you laughing have actually watched the show. Yeah. Right. How do we emerge victorious from the quagmire and leave the battlefield waving Betsy Ross's flag higher? There's this upside downness that is starting to emerge as the way of Jesus enters further and further into Greco-Roman culture. There's this upside downness, this tension that the average Greco-Roman citizen, the average person living in Philippi or Thessalonica or soon next week will see Athens. There's a tension they feel about the way that their life is and what this way of Jesus means. And the way that it gets phrased here in Acts 17 is that these men claim allegiance to another king, a king named Caesar. This is why Paul and Silas are in trouble. They are disturbing the peace. It's a massive violation in the Roman Empire in this moment. But at a deeper level, the very message of the gospel, it's confronting cultural norms in the Greco-Roman way of life that as we continue to see in the book of Acts, it will just continue to put the Jesus people in more and more danger. Remember that in this section of the book of Acts, like say 16, 17, and 18, Luke wants us to see that it's not just Jews that find uh, the message and the gospel of Jesus troubling, it's also Greco-Romans that find it troubling. I, I read a quote from a scholar a couple weeks ago who said that both Jews and Gentiles view the mission of Jesus as a threat to their customs. The customs that provide social cohesion, the religious basis of their cultures, and political stability through Caesar's rule. This is what's happening here in Thessalonica. The message of Jesus is presented in the synagogue is threatening the, the social cohesion of the city. It is threatening their religious way of life. It is threatening political stability under Caesar. And so to talk about that, I want to talk a little bit this morning about the Roman Empire uh, in the time of the Apostles. The Roman Empire in Paul's day was simply unthinkably, unimaginably huge, right? We're talking an empire that stretched from the far coast of Spain past modern-day Israel 
over all of Italy, over all of Greece, over all of Turkey, through almost all of North Africa, almost all of France. Within the first, uh, after about 100 AD, they take over. Uh, they take over what we now know as Britain. I mean, the Roman Empire was unthinkably, unthinkably massive in a cultural moment when the fastest way you had to communicate with someone was a letter. Right. I mean, the bureaucracy that it takes to oversee the federal government and the state government of the United States is one thing, but it really pales in comparison to what Rome was able to accomplish given the limitations of their time. And yet, Rome was wildly, wildly far ahead of its day. Uh, Jesus is born into, and the gospel goes forth in what uh, scholars call the Pax Romana which you learned about in social studies, I guarantee you. The Pax Romana, Pax means peace, the Roman peace. The Roman peace stretched roughly 27 BC to 180 AD. And during this time, the Roman, the Roman government, they're deploying practices and policies that nobody has ever heard of. For example, let's connect our whole empire with roads. Some of those roads, like you can still see today. Let's connect our empire with bridges, some bridges of which are still standing today. Let's make sure our major cities have this thing called fresh water and sewage. So we have these aqueducts that run the water into the cities. These aqueducts still here today. And so because of these roads, uh, communication was actually able to be spread relatively fast because they would use horses and they would have stations along the road. So you could get a message from one end of the empire to the other in a couple of weeks, which I mean, to them in that cultural moment was like introducing the text message, right? Like when I first started texting, you had to pick up your phone and it was just the numbers on your keys, right? So you had to like hit H E why send it that's 25 cents right <laughs> like that was texting you know now i'm just you know and they're flying all over the place and we're saying these things but this is what's this kind of similar technological revolution is what's gripping the roman empire and so here you have this massive empire that is spanning multiple cultures multiple countries multiple languages and here's the problem with that what are the what are the things that we fight about in the classical world of this time. What do we fight about in the last century BC, the first century AD? I'll tell you what we fight about. Language. We fight about culture. We fight about religion. We fight about state boundaries. And so here's the Roman Empire trying to get all of these Greco-Roman cultures to hang together. We're trying to get all of these um, African cultures to hang together. We're trying to get all of these Northern European cultures to hang out together. And these are people that have traditionally been at war with one another. How do we hold a massive empire of that size together? Here's what we do. First, what we do is we engage in a religious practice of syncretism. We say to all of these cultures that we have conquered, you know what, here's what's funny. Have you ever noticed all of our cultures, we worship a god of the sky? Well, that's because we all worship the same god. He's just got different names. And, you know, all of our cultures, we worship an, a fertility goddess. And, you know, that's because we all, you know, worship the same god by different names. So they, they create this pantheon, which means literally all gods. They create this pantheon temple in Rome, and they add every culture's gods to it. This will feature important in next week's sermon. They had every culture's God to it, but then the way that they get everybody to really hang out, not just by blending everybody's religion into one big blob, they also say, and by the way, the Roman emperor is now a God. They take a picture of Julius Caesar and they put him in the temple. They put him in the pantheon. 
And they say, here's how we're going to hang out together. First, we're going to stop fighting about religion because you know what? We're all actually practicing the same religion anyway. Second, we're all going to worship the emperor together. And so by the time of Jesus, certainly by the time that Paul got to a city like Thessalonica, it was not uncommon for good Roman citizens to once a week, once a month, once a year, go to a temple where there would be an image of Caesar and burn incense in front of him. This is a problem for Christians because Christians believe there is one God and we certainly know that Julius Caesar isn't him. And so Roman Christians and Greco-Roman cultures began to be treated with a real strong sense of suspicion that they were disloyal to the emperor, that they were not good. They weren't patriots. They weren't patriotic. Right? I know that's hard to imagine because really in our cultural moment, we have conflated patriotism with Christianity. But in, until like the last mm, 300 years, to be a patriot and to be a Christian were always very distinct things, right? In fact, listen to this, to talk about like the deity that they ascribed to Caesar. This is a birthday card that went throughout the whole Roman Empire after Augustus Octavian had been ruling for about 20 years. They sent inscriptions. Uh, they sent them with messengers. These messengers ran into the cities and they proclaimed gospel. They proclaimed good news. They proclaimed euangelion to all of the cities in the Roman Empire for Octavian's birthday. And this is what they said. Because providence has ordered our life in the way of the divine, and since the emperor, through his epiphany, his arriving, has exceeded the hopes of all former good news, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will surpass him. And since the birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of his good news, may it be decreed, and it went on and on and on. Now, if I read that to you at Christmas time, you would think I was talking about Jesus, right? And this is how the Roman Empire, at the time of Paul, at the time of the apostles, actually this birthday card went out in the late 10th century BC. So a little bit before Jesus was born, the Roman Empire was talking about its gods in the terms of good news, literally where the word we get the gospel from. Paul rips off the word gospel to talk about the Jesus becoming king. Before Jesus, the, gospel, the word gospel was about an emperor becoming king. He talks about his epiphany. He talks about the birthday of the God. He says he has exceeded all hope in the future that no one will surpass him. And into this world, this carefully architectured world of politics and money and religion holding together the Roman Empire where Caesar was Lord and nobody messed with him and his underlings kept the peace in every city and that kept the money flowing through the empire and the way that we hold everybody together is with religion into this carefully architectured society where Caesar is Lord. Paul comes into a city called Thessalonica and says, Jesus is Lord. Y'all, nobody was doing this at this time. These were fighting words, right? I mean, really, it was so countercultural that Jesus would come into the world and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Not the kingdom of Caesar. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the good news. Not the good news that Caesar is Lord. Not the good news that the Roman Empire is here to take care of you as long as you all behave and do nice things. No. Repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. Repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus steps onto the scene of the Roman Empire. He announces another kingdom. His followers proclaim him to be Lord and King of all the earth, which, by the way, is proven by his resurrection from the dead. And in a world where there was one Lord, Kaiser Kurios, the Jesus, the Jesus people began to proclaim that there was another king, another greater king. Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And suddenly now we're starting to see why on earth Paul is in so much trouble. Suddenly we're starting to see why on earth Paul is in so much trouble. Because Christians say, you say Caesar is the son of God. Let me tell you about Jesus, the son of God. Christians are saying, you want to talk about the kingdom of Caesar? Let's talk about the kingdom of God. Christians are saying, you're a citizen of Rome. Well, I'm a citizen of heaven. Christians are like, you want me to burn incense before an image of the emperor? That's idolatry. I worship Jesus. And so in Acts 17, Jason and the Christians are dragged out. Paul and Silas are accused. They sneak Paul and Silas out of the city. He goes to Berea. Later on in chapter 17, the Bereans sneak Paul out of the city and escort him to Athens so that nobody can mess with him on the road. They go back to Berea. And as we turn the pages of, of Scripture farther and farther and farther into the book of Acts, we will just see this tension between the average way of life of Greco-Roman citizens and the average way of life for the average Christian, we're going to see them clashing together more and more and more until the book of Acts ends with Paul on house arrest waiting for his death. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. This section, 2 Corinthians 4, we, some of you may have heard this. We tend to think this is about like, oh, like I lost my job or oh, this friendship is falling apart. or oh, And it is about those things. But what Paul has in mind when he's writing this passage is beatings, imprisonment, all of the things that come with proclaiming the way of Jesus. He says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, Paul says, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. By the way, all of these things that are going on in Afghanistan right now, um, house church leaders in Afghanistan have received letters from the Taliban saying, we know where you are and we know what you're doing. We live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, Paul says. He goes on in verse 16. That is why we never give up. What? That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. 
yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on that which cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Here's Paul turning the world upside down. Proclaiming a good news that a new king is here and his kingdom has no end. And 2,000 years ago, it got Paul into a great deal of trouble, this proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. Because over and over again, he bumped into, and often, sometimes explicitly and often implicitly, attacked the way of life of the culture around him. Here's what I want us to think about in our last few minutes together today. To be a follower of Jesus in this cultural moment will necessarily cause us to bump into and even offend the cultural sensibilities of our day. Right? So the first thing I want to tell you is that to follow Jesus is to live upside down when everybody is living right side up. To follow Jesus to, is to live upside down when everyone is living right side up. And it's hard to grasp that in our cultural moment, in like our time and our place. Like if we were living in Portland, if we were living in New York City, like we would be well aware of the stark difference between the way of Jesus and the culture around us. But here we are in Northeast Ohio. We're in Trumbull County. We're in the Mahoning Valley where everyone is nice and where everyone is a Christian. Makes me crazy. Right? The, you know how, like, Trumbull County, you know how we do all truth is God's truth, postmodern, everybody finds their way to the top of the mountain, is we just choose to believe that everybody in our families is a Christian because we can't bear the thought of what, what it means that they won't be. Right? So we tend to think of Christianity as an add-on to our life. We tend to think of Christianity as a salad dressing that pairs well with our otherwise normal Midwestern, Northeast Ohio, Trumbull County life. And yet here we see Paul and Silas and the people of Jesus accused of turning the world upside down because to follow Jesus is to live upside down. The way of Jesus doesn't flavor your life. It doesn't just describe your life. It defines your life in such a way that it makes you distinct or ought to from the culture around you. C.S. Lewis says that when everyone is running over a cliff, the person running in the opposite direction looks insane. When everyone is running over a cliff, the person running in the opposite direction looks insane. That is the essential idea of what it means to be Christian. It means running in the opposite direction to which everyone else is running. We have to contend against the idea that to be a good American is to be a good Christian. We have to contend against the idea that the Christian life in our context is normal and therefore doesn't cause distinction between us and our neighbors. You have to contend against the idea that all of your children and grandchildren are Christians. Because if you don't, you are condemning them to hell. 
by not proclaiming the gospel to them because you're just going to assume that they're fine, you are relinquishing your responsibility. There's a distinction. We have to contend against the idea that following Jesus is a tame pursuit. And if everybody just thought about it a little bit more and if Oprah just became a Christian, then we'd all be fine. So first we have to grapple with the idea that being a Christian means to live upside down when everyone else is living right side up. That's exactly why Paul and Silas and Timothy get in trouble in Thessalonica and Berea and Athens and in every place they go on. I mean, wait till we get to Ephesus and the riot here in Thessalonica will look like, you know, a small Memorial Day parade. I mean, this, the riot in Ephesus, not to get too personal, but the riot in Ephesus makes the events of January 6th look tame. Living inside the upside-down kingdom means we will bump up against our culture in ways that make us and them uncomfortable. Because if you're running the other way, if you're running in the opposite direction of a crowd running this way, what are you inevitably going to do? You're going to bump shoulders with people. Living fully into the way of Jesus causes us to bump into our culture. It it causes us to stumble on these places where we are living a very different story than the average person living in our community, just as the way that Paul, living the story of Jesus, comes to discover that the average person living in Greco-Roman culture, he's bumping up against something that they take personally. And so here's what I tend to see happens. We tend to try to make ourselves more comfortable in one of the following two ways. Some of this skews generationally, some of this skews politically, but let's just name the two, right? We try, some of us try to make ourselves more comfortable by reconstructing our faith in a way that is more palatable to the culture. You might call this like an assimilationist tendency, right? So we see some some dis points of distinction between the way of Jesus and the way of our culture. So what we do is we file down, we reconstruct or deconstruct those differences in such a way that it's not as uncomfortable as it was a few minutes ago to follow Jesus because actually, while I'm kind of still vaguely spiritual, I kind of agree with my culture. So there's this like deconstructing, redefining the nature of scripture and these kinds of things tendency. The other tendency of that is the culture war tendency. Right? We are going to fight a culture war. We are going to elect people that share our values so that the values in our culture reflect my values. But at the core of both of these postures, whether it's deconstructing or culture war, is it just makes it way more comfortable for me. Because if my culture is reflected in the White House, if my culture is enforced by laws of Congress, if my, if my practices are, are the norm, then I get to be pretty comfortable. And if that doesn't work, what I could always do is just deconstruct and change the essential message of the gospel or change certain ideas. And then, again, I'm very comfortable. And what, what both of those postures have in common, the culture war and the deconstruction, is a desire just to be comfortable. I don't want to bump up against people's shoulders while I'm running the other way. I'm not even sure I want to run the other way. And so with that comfort or desire for it to enter into the upside down kingdom of God, Jesus says we have to do two things. We have to repent and believe. We have to repent and believe. I read this verse earlier from Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe the good news. The primary work that we do as followers of Jesus is repenting and believing because that is the way that we step into this kingdom, this kingdom that is at hand. Uh, this word kingdom that Jesus uses in the Gospel of Mark, this, that's Mark 1, 14 and 15. The word that kingdom that, Paul, that, that, that Jesus uses there, it, it's kind of masked because it sounds like a noun, but it's really a verb, right? It's not so much a kingdom that is an organizational structure, but it is the reign and rule of Jesus. It is the reign and rule of God. So think about like uh, King Henry VIII, Right When we talk about King Henry VIII, whatever King Henry wanted done, got done. Why? Because it was the kingdom of King Henry VIII. It was his rule and his reign, right? Uh, Caesar, in Paul's day, uh, the kingdom of Caesar, the rule and reign of Caesar was such that whatever Caesar wanted done, got done. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. It's where his reign and will are brought into effect. And the way that we enter into that kingdom that turns the world upside down, that causes us to live upside down, the way that, uh, the way that, 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 that we enter into that, Paul said, but Jesus says, sorry, is by repenting and believing. And repent doesn't just mean change of direction or change your mind. It means a fundamental change of worldview. To believe is not just to agree to a set of facts and keep living. To agree is to step out. It's almost like when Jesus is saying, repent and believe. He's like he's saying, rethink everything you thought you knew about who God is and who you are and what the good life you crave actually is and put your trust and confidence in me to heal you, save you, free you, and lead you to the life you ache for. Our desire for comfort, which doesn't seem like too much of a request here in everybody's Christian Northeast Ohio, is a failure of repentance, is a failure of entering into the kingdom. It's a failure to rethink everything that we thought we knew. And yes, we crave comfort. And yes, we crave belonging. And yes, we crave to live a quiet life and not to make too much trouble, but to step out in faith. To step out in faith. To put our trust and confidence in Jesus. To enter this kingdom where the world turns upside down. That is the greater work. That is the work that we are called to do. And that is why G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and therefore untried. Amen. Here at Regen, we um, have a culture of revelation and response. We want to hear God's voice, like Kyle was just talking about, and we want to be transformed by it. We want to do it. And I think when we hear a sermon like this, and even this week as we've been hearing kind of the news coming in from Afghanistan and, and just the heaviness there, there can be this tendency to be afraid. There can be this tendency to feel angry. There can be this tendency even sometimes to feel shame of, can I live up to that? Can I do those things? And I, I just want to remind us this morning that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, that it is his love for us that calls us to this kingdom, to this better way. And so as we um, have a moment um, of, of reflecting, of listening to God's voice uh, this morning, my question is, what is he inviting you to this week? 
Is it um, to maybe take a little bit more of a bold stance? Is it to trust that he is your protector and your provider this week? Is it to say to him, just, Father, I'm not even sure. What are you asking of me? What is your invitation for me this morning? So let's just take a moment, and then I'll, I'll pray. 